Genesis 1, this account is really, from a scientific perspective, it is amazing. Let there be light is the first moment. I just sit there with my jaw open because, I mean, I know it's not a scientific explanation. I know that the science isn't necessary for salvation, but how did he hit on that? I mean, there's nothing like this in the history of religion, yet it is dead on right from a scientific perspective. Catholics can believe in evolution, just as long as you believe that human beings are transcendent. So that means that Catholics can't believe in every kind of evolutionary theory. And you're completely blind. Right? Yeah, yeah. There's no light, there's no tunnel, anything uh. like that. If you had a choice to lose your sight or lose your hearing, which one would you choose? Welcome to the Bible Timeline Show. I'm Jeff Cavins. And today we have a wonderful guest, Father Robert Spitzer. We're going to be looking at the early world, which is the very first period of salvation history. It is the turquoise period, where we, we talk about the very beginning of everything, starting in chapter one. A lot of questions come up about the early world, about creation, and about the Big Bang Theory, and, and uh, science, and should we really believe those first 11 chapters? They sound kind of simple, yet our entire faith springs from those first 11 chapters, and it kind of gets the script going and the, the narrative going. Father, it's great to have you. Great to be with you, Jeff. Thanks so very much. You, bet. you and I first met, I think, almost 30 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. You were young, I was young, and it was life on the <laughs> rock on e EWTN. That's right. That's amazing. Yeah. I got to ask you, uh, you know, every time I turn around, you're somewhere speaking, you're writing books, you, you are putting out so many good things for people to, to study. What have you been doing over the last 20 years or so? Well, um, when I uh, left Gonzaga University as the president in 2009, I decided to uh, come down to Orange County to um, uh, start a Faith and Reason Institute, uh, you know, the Maja Center, uh, which also, of course, emphasized the scientific uh, aspects of Faith and Science Institute uh, as well. And uh, I started, uh, you know, I had to develop, uh, you know, the Catholic version of uh, faith and science uh, by writing books, and then I began to turn that into uh, high school curriculum. So we uh, make a, a high school curriculum called the Catholic Faith and Science for a senior year elective in Catholic schools, um, and uh, really rescues people's faith, uh, the students' faith per, uh, particularly. Uh, trying um, uh, to, to, to do that for middle school students, we have a curriculum called Speak the Faith, uh, for middle school students. It's a public speaking course, but it's basically uh, science-based apologetics so that the kids won't lose their faith. Uh, the critical age now is 13 uh, when the kids make the decision to leave, and we know that 48% of them will make that decision uh, to leave on the basis just of faith and science issues. Wow. So I decided I got to give myself over to this. And so I go around the country uh, quite a bit, mm -hmm. speaking to whole, you know, whole groups of teachers from various dioceses. I speak at various conferences of, uh, of teachers as well, and uh, trying to get them to see how important this curriculum is mm -hmm. to maintaining the faith. Because if we keep losing 50% of our kids just on this one issue, uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be a very depleted church very quickly. Before we get into the early world, these first 11 chapters, what do you think it is about, what are the big questions that particularly young people are interested in or they're saying, this has to be answered if I'm going to be t- taking this seriously? Yeah. Well, the last Big Pew survey makes that pretty clear. The number one uh, uh, problem for the kids is faith in science or even reason and faith. Mm. Uh, when, we, when you have 42% of those kids saying, well, I don't think there's any evidence uh, for, um, for faith uh, from uh, anything, philosophy, science, anything, and you have another huge chunk of that uh, group saying, I think that faith and science are contradictory, so I have to believe in science because that's truth, therefore faith has to be a fiction. We got a problem. Yeah. But it, the whole thing is needless. I mean, <laughs> I mean, because there's more, more information from science today that validates faith. And we, we can talk about that in, in the show as well. Sure. It fits under the, uh, the title. But uh, more evidence today uh, for God, more evidence today for an intelligent creator, more evidence today for a transphysical soul which can survive bodily death. Even, you know, like in 2022, the New York Academy of Sciences actually came out and said, yeah, there's a very real credible po- uh, possibility that your consciousness will survive bodily death. And can you imagine the New York Academy of Sciences saying that mm-hmm. even 10 years ago? The, the peer-reviewed medical studies now are so prolific and so well done that it's almost de- undeniable yeah. even for, uh, you know, uh, an ostensibly scientific journal uh, to, to, to validate. Well, let's jump into the scripture. This, uh, sure. The early world, the first 11 chapters of Genesis is the beginning of the entire story. And if you look at my Bible, Father, you'll see that those first 11 chapters are so marked up. And yeah. the reason is I've concluded that everything that we're reading after that in some way comes from these these early these early chapters. It sort of sets the table. We have mm-hmm. we have God, we have Adam and Eve, we have the enemy, and we have the uh, the you know the do not eat from the tree we have original uh-huh. sin uh, and, and so forth, all of this. But uh-huh. as we start with Genesis 1 through 11, one of the problems that I see, not for you and I, but for, yeah. let's say, a high school student reading it, is that mm-hmm. it seems to start off very simplistic, almost childlike. Mm-hmm. And I heard someone say one time that we were raised on nursery rhymes. We were raised on <laughs> Hansel and Gretel and, you know, Little Bo Peep and all these stories. And the Bible and creation got mixed up in there. And by the time they yeah. grew up, and you said about 13 years of age, yeah. they still have those stories in there with nursery rhymes and, th- you know, the stories like, like that. Mm-hmm. So starting off, what do you say uh, to someone who says, do you really expect me to believe that simple little story at the beginning? Yeah, I'd probably make two distinctions that Pope Pius XII made in a very important encyclical called Divino Afflante Spiritu. Mm-hmm. This is way back in 1941-42. And um, Pope Pius XII said the first thing we have to remember is that um, science its job, its method, and its objective is to give a proper empirical mathematical explanation of the physical universe. It has a very strict method for doing this, and it gets the job done. 
The purpose of scripture, though, he says, is to give sacred truths necessary for salvation or that are beneficial to salvation. So in Divino Afflante Spiritu, he says, you have to be very careful about making the, script, the, the biblical author do science. Mm -hmm. he, his purpose wasn't science. His he didn't even know what empirical mathematical method was. <laughs> he couldn't have possibly been doing science. But he's giving um, you know information that's beneficial for salvation. And Pope Pius XII adds, in no way are these scientific facts necessary, beneficial to your salvation. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, properly speaking, come under the idea of inerrancy. Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a way of describing a more important lesson that's underneath the images that the biblical author is using. So what is the biblical author doing? Biblical author, you know, he's, he's concerned with rival myths, right? Mm -hmm. There's like all these myths that are, are out there that have been around for a long time, like well, some of them almost a thousand years, mm -hmm. the Atrahasis, Enuma Elish, Gilgamesh, etc. And they all have a variety of different um, uh, theological errors that would really affect not only the salvation of the, the people in the sixth century BC, mm -hmm. but also would affect um, uh, today's people like me sure. uh, and you. And so uh, he says, first thing we got to learn is uh, there's not many gods. There's only one God. And boy, that is absolutely clear. Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, boom. Mm -hmm. And of course, and the first thing is, who made God made the heavens and the earth. And now, if you start with that, and then you begin to proceed, you see the second thing. All the things of creation are not gods. There's not a sea god. There's not a mountain god, you know, et cetera. All the things of the world, everything except the one Lord God, is the creation of the one Lord God. So he's got that really, I mean, so brilliant. It's so totally out of the blue. Mm -hmm. It is so radically differentiated from any other religious thought across, the, not just the Middle East, across mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the third thing is human beings are not just cannon fodder for the gods. Right, the, Olympi the Olympians. <laughs> the Olympians, exactly. They basically um, are made in the very image and likeness of God. They have a divine dignity. They are to be respected. They must be treated with justice. And of course, we must treat others justly as God has made us uh, you know, just and, and treats us with justice. And you can see as you, we go you know, through the other um, parts of the 11 chapters of Genesis, you can see how this theme of everything is about uh, justice, about human beings being wicked or something, they don't come about by capricious activities and so forth and so mm -hmm. on. Every once in a while in our talk together here, I'd like to just stop and say, okay, in one sentence or one idea, what's the difference? So if someone said, well, the story of salvation history in, Gen in Genesis 1 through 11 is just one of many stories. What would be one, one statement that you would make that how is this different? 
Well, I'd make four statements where it's categorically different. And that means it, there's no other religion that has anything mm-hmm. like it. One God only. And we're not talking about Ottonism here, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we're talking about a one, you know, master of the universe, all-powerful God. Totally unique. The second thing is, is human beings actually sharing in the dignity that being made in the image and likeness of God. Totally different from the viewpoint of... Uh, that's uh, around the Middle East. The third thing, of course, is what is God's interest? God's interest is in justice and the good. Mm -hmm. He's not interested in playing games. He's not interested in getting an advantage over rival gods. He's interested in one thing, that human beings be just and good so that, of course, in imitation of him whose image they have been created in, and of course, he wants that justice and goodness of human beings to be towards one another, to, you know, toward the marriage covenant. Mm-hmm. And of course, he extends that to a whole variety uh, of different things by the time you get to the Tower of Babel and so forth. But the main thing to remember is that's a, a third huge uh, difference. There's just nothing like this uh, anywhere. Mm-hmm. In fact, Mosaic Yahwism is, is totally uh, 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 different. But the main thing to, to recognize is the covenant on which this pertains, that God would be so interested in, you know, what the rival myths would call puny little human beings, <laughs> that he would come and, you know, with his prophets and enter into history and, and be walking with his people and give a covenant to his people and guide his people like a shepherd guides sure. his flock. I mean, you just look, where's this to be found in the whole history of religions? Nixo. I mean, it is so unbelievable. Yet every one of those ideas, every single one, not only changed the history of religions, oh, it certainly did that. Mm-hmm. And then not just in the Judeo-Christian uh, areas and, or Islamic areas, but I mean, uh, I mean, completely changed the history yeah. of religions because of course, now of course, people accept, uh, you know, there are some religions today that are still polytheistic. Yeah. But I mean, you can see the transformation from like almost 100% polytheistic. Now, of course, it's, it's maybe about uh, 20, 21% uh, polytheistic in the, in the world today, but you can see the influence yeah. already of these narratives. But more than that, just in terms of uh, polytheism, I mean, you can see it's not just influencing religion, it's influencing culture. It's influencing ethics and morality. I mean, if we conceive of ourselves as spiritual beings, as moral beings, not just merely as materialistic entities that were created to become playthings or slaves of the gods, etc. If you can see that God has an interest in developing us as spiritual and moral beings, how does that change? How does that give rise to human rights? Mm-hmm. I mean, why is it that the Catholic Church is the origin of, of you know, what we call uh, today inalienable rights to life, liberty, mm-hmm. and the pursuit of happiness and property? That that came from Francisco Suarez, a Jesuit, uh, in 1620 in a book called uh, De Legibus. Now, in, in you say, well, how, where'd that come from? It came from Aquinas. Well, where did Aquinas get? It came from Augustine. Where did Augustine get it? Jesus Christ through the Judeo-Christian tradition that we're talking sure. about right now. And so you look at that and you go, it had to come 
from this. You're not going to inalienable rights mm-hmm. coming out of these ancient religions where you know you have uh, the the dignity of a fly. That's it. You know that you know <laughs> for all intents and purposes, this is coming out of a radical change. And the interesting thing is, God's walking with His people. God's guiding those people, and God's not going to choose like you know the brainiacs, right? Uh, God's not going to. Cho- well, sometimes He does choose brainiacs. I mean, let's face facts. Aquinas and Gus and yeah, yeah. people like that were super brainiacs. But uh, to make a long story short, he's he's not gonna he's gonna he prefers littleness. Now, yes, Paul is a brainiac. There's no doubt, but he prefers uh, to do things in a small way. Fisherman. Yeah, exactly. So he's not gonna go to the big empires, Babylon, Egypt. Doesn't and impress so him. Uh, that, yeah, that's right. Doesn't impress him. He just goes. I think I'm gonna take little Israel. And then uh, I think I'm going to raise him. Uh, where will I have my son born? Uh, in a stable in Bethlehem. Uh, okay. <laughs> and, of course, you just keep going right down the path. And, of course, everything's small, little, gentle, meek, humble. You know, and you, you look at that and you go, ah, seems to remind me of the Beatitudes. Yeah. You know, poor in spirit, be humble-hearted, let, you know, meek, gentle-hearted. Let me say. make just a, a, yeah. one comment. You know, we're watching, watching the show right now. And the four things that, that Father mentioned that make this, this narrative so unique, I would really encourage you to write those down. And when you study in the future, when you are looking into the early world, when you're looking into science and creation, don't forget those things. You know, and that's one of the problems that we have, isn't it, Father, that we learn something and then we move on, but we don't make it a part of our study. Absolutely. And those four things are radically important. I can't think of another four things that affected not just the world of of religion, not just the world of morality and ethics, but also the world of politics and, and you know social politics, yeah. and finally the world of culture itself, the world that we inherited today. It's so imbued mm-hmm. with those first 12 chapters uh, of Genesis, first 11 chapters in particular of Genesis. It's truly uh, amazing. Well, let's get back into the Bible mm-hmm. and let's go back to the beginning because this is where everybody starts and they, a lot of people never get to the story because they can't settle on how in the world this great big ball in the universe was even created uh, mm-hmm. so well. We deal with the Big Bang, we deal with mere chance, all of this versus uh, a creator. So let's, let's go a couple of years prior to creation. What's happening? Well, um, in both the scientific worldview and the biblical worldview, if you were to say prior to the creation, there would be no physical time, no physical space, no physical universe, no physical reality. In fact, one microsecond before, eh, one micro, micro, microsecond before, there's a pure nothing. Physical reality was nothing. And in this respect, the scientific worldview and the biblical worldview agree. I mean, you can just look at it as like a three-part uh, mm-hmm. syllogism, a three-part art, uh, a proof or art demonstration. The easy way to look at it is, number one, if prior to physical reality, I don't care whether physical reality was a multiverse, a string universe in the higher dimensional space, a string theory, a bouncing universe, you know, expanding, contracting, re-expanding, re-contracting, et cetera, et cetera. I don't care what it was. If you had a real beginning, and that's what scientists today think, and there's a very good evidence for that, we can talk about it if you wish. But the uh, the key thing that that matters is, if you have that evidence that you really do have a beginning of physical reality, 
whether it's a multiverse, a string universe, whatever it may be. Well, prior to that beginning, physical reality was nothing. Mm -hmm. Second thing, uh, uh, second uh, 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 you know, uh, premise, hey, look, what can nothing do? Nothing, because it's nothing mm -hmm. and can only do nothing. So number three, well, if prior to physical reality's beginning, the whole of physical reality was nothing and nothing can only do nothing, then nothing, physical reality could never have moved itself from nothing to something sure. because it could have only done nothing. So therefore, something else, something beyond physical reality, something beyond what we call space-time asymmetry will have to move um, reality from nothing to something. And that um, would be this beyond physical reality that has the power, the capacity to create out of nothing, ex nihilo. We call that generally a creator or God. And there's a lot of reasons for thinking that that God is very, very intelligent indeed. Mm -hmm. In fact, our universe is so hard to explain. It's about the same odds as a monkey typing the entire corpus of Shakespeare by random tapping of the keys perfectly in a single try. Don't bet on it. Don't bet on it. It's not going to happen even in a multiverse. The odds of this being an accident are, as you said, well, it just isn't. It just the world can't yeah. even contain that kind of act, that yeah. kind of accident in terms of numbers. Yeah. Yet, and you probably have seen this. You, you and I were talking earlier about when we were growing up. Yeah. Uh, we, we, you go to a stadium to hear a rock concert. You didn't go to a stadium to hear people talk. And yeah. today, people are going to stadiums and they're listening to yeah. Dawkins, they're listening to Jordan Peterson, they're yeah. listening to all these people talking about truth and reality. And for some reason, a lot of our young people are finding it vogue in vogue to be atheists. Yeah. It's almost like it's a trendy thing. What do you what do you think about that? As far as it's, yeah. when you and I were kids, that was never really a thing. Yeah. I, I think maybe Dawkins got the ball rolling on that in his God Illusion uh, website and so forth. But I'll be honest with you now, today, it's counter-trend because if you look at the number of scientists who are believers today, the last Pew survey of the American Association for the Advancement of Science shows pretty precisely that 51% um, of scientists today believe um, which is up about 8% mm -hmm. from just about 20 years ago. 51% overall think, uh, believe in God or a higher transcendent power. Only 21% are agnostics and 20% atheists. So even though the kids think most scientists are atheists, it's just not, not the case. Wow. The Pew survey, which is good objective data, um, you know, basically says, no, that's about 51% um, theists, believers in God, compared to 20% atheists, non-believers in God. Mm -hmm. The other thing which is most interesting, though, is young scientists. In the same Pew survey, young scientists uh, turned out to be 66% believers in God and a higher transcendent power. Now that's a super majority. Mm -hmm. Only 15% declare themselves agnostics and 15% uh, declare themselves atheists. And then you look at the big survey um, of doctors. 76% of doctors declared themselves to be believers in God or a higher transcendent power. Mm -hmm. Only 12.1% uh, agnostics, and I think it was 11.2% uh, 
uh, declare themselves to be uh, atheists. So you look at this and you say, well, wait a minute here. Um, why is this trend shifting? Um, when the kids are yeah. going the opposite direction, they think they're being trendy by believing in atheism. Why is it that all the scientists are shifting over uh, to belief in theism? Let's jump into the text for a, a, yeah, sure. for a moment here. Sure. When we come to the beginning of the Bible, we have a pretty simple explanation, and, and there's nothing there. First three days of creation, we have time, we have we have space, we have uh, you know the the and then we have the earth, and then days four, five, and six, God populates this. You know, uh -huh. the, we have the, uh, the the heavens with the sun, the moon, and the stars. We have the fish in the sea, and then on earth we have the animals, and then and then man. There are arguments out there about okay. Is evolution part of this? Is it wrong to believe in evolution? There is what's called an, a young earth theory, meaning that if you take the numbers of the Bible, you have a universe that is only several, you know, thousands of years old, which seems unrealistic. And so what is the role of evolution if there is a role? And how do you explain two different accounts of creation right at the beginning, because somebody picking up the Bible reads that there's two accounts and they're not exactly the same, and all of a sudden they're, a, I don't know what ground I'm standing on now. Yeah. Well, in the Catholic Church, and this, uh, not all of our Protestant brethren uh, believe what I'm about to say, but Pope Pius XII, the same Pope I mentioned just a, a few minutes ago, he also wrote another uh, encyclical called Humani Generis. Mm -hmm. And in that encyclical, uh, goes back to about 1950, 51, um, in that encyclical, he says the Catholics can believe in evolution so long as they continue to believe in a God's creation of an individual, unique, transphysical soul in every human being. So in other words, a transphysical soul, that, of course, can't evolve. What's a transphysical soul? Oh, like a transcendent soul. It's, it's not reducible to physical processes and structures. Okay. So it's beyond the world of physics, beyond physical laws, beyond physical structures, beyond, right? So it's transphysical. The word trans okay. means beyond. So it's beyond all of those, uh, you know, uh, physical structures, processes, and laws. So, it, you know, a soul can do immaterial things. A soul doesn't have to be attached to a body. That soul, which is not reducible to bodies and to physical laws and processes and structures, can survive even if the body will should die. Now, in light of near-death experiences, that's not a problem anymore. I mean, like I said, the majority of doctors and a lot of scientists today uh, certainly believe that uh, consciousness will survive bodily death because consciousness is not reducible to mere physical processes and structures. It's transphysical. It's beyond physical structures. It's immaterial. So that's the first thing um, uh, you know, to, to note. But let's go back to Pope Pius XII for just a moment. So Pope Pius XII says, you know, uh, okay, you can believe in evolution just as long as you believe that human beings are transcendent. So that means that Catholics can't believe in every kind of evolutionary theory. So we have what's called purely materialistic neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory. The, a Catholic couldn't do that because 
there, you have to have a transphysical cause like God mm -hmm. to explain a transphysical soul in every human being. Uh, a physical organic process like evolution can't give rise to a transphysical entity or reality. So evolution can't explain our souls. Uh, the only way you're going to do that is if God intervenes and gives you one, mm -hmm. gives me one, gives all of us one. So that's the first thing. The second thing that's um, important is, so, okay, we have to believe in what we call theistic evolution. And the majority of scientists, because they are theists, uh, tend to be in this category of theistic evolution. And, and so they do uh, tend to think that uh, there is um, uh, a God that, like, for example, Francis Collins, uh, you know, he, he's a believer in what's called nomogenesis. Nomogenesis means that God front loads all the laws and everything that will be needed um, in the subsequent epochs of the universe. Everything is front loaded into the universe at the moment of the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. So that's uh, nomogenesis. There's another called um, orthogenesis. Uh, orthogenesis is uh, there's a priest named Teilhard de, de Chardin, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, um, where he, you know, he would believe that God acts like an omega point. So God's like a final cause, uh, you know, that's drawing. Uh, uh, you know, the whole evolutionary process to completion in himself. So um, uh, that would be more orthogenesis. Uh, you have people like Michael Polanyi, uh, the great physicist, uh, I mean, a great chemist and uh, philosopher, uh, Michael Polanyi at uh, Oxford there. And he uh, believes um, in what's called normal orthogenesis. So God is present at the beginning but God is also acting as a final cause and subsequently a guiding things, even guiding uh, uh, history um, uh, as we see it, uh, you know, uh, to its reality, uh, to its fullness of, of reality. So the main thing then to, to, to see is that Pope Pius XII says, as a Catholic, you can be, you know, uh, uh, believe in what's called, you know, theistic evolution, you know, nomogenesis, orthogenesis, no more orthogenesis, you can believe as you wish. You have to, of course, believe in a transphysical soul. And of course, your view of evolution can't deny God. So with those two caveats in mind, uh, we can believe in, in certainly in, in evolution. By the way, uh, the, the person who discovered the Big Bang Theory was a, a Catholic priest, um, uh, Father Georges Lemaitre. Uh, and Georges Lemaitre you know, went to MIT, got his doctorate, colleague of Einstein's, colleague of Hubble's. He was the first one, 1927, to have mathematically justified the Big Bang Theory using the general theory of relativity from Einstein. How do you how do you reconcile those two accounts? Well, uh, between the Bible and and uh, the two uh, accounts in the beginning of Genesis. Yeah. Uh, oh, I see. Uh, between Genesis one and Genesis yeah. two. Yeah. I mean, uh, the the key thing, of course, with Genesis one, Genesis one, this account is really, from a scientific perspective, it is amazing. First of all, the idea, well, of course, of of a single transphysical God, you know, that's a good one right to start with. <laughs> and then let there be light as the first moment. I just sit there with my jaw open because, I mean, I know it's not a scientific explanation. I know that the science isn't necessary for salvation, but how did he hit on that? 
I mean, there's nothing like this in the history of religion, yet it is dead on right from a scientific perspective. The energetic movement, right? And, uh, you know, light is, after all, energy. Now, it's photon energy, that is true. But, you know, the, the main thing, though, is, is you've got this, in the beginning was energy. Yeah. And that energy, you know, moves very quickly. In less than a 10 to the minus 20 second seconds, it's moved already to the point of light, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you look at this, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, creation narrative, and, and it's like, it, it wows me. Uh, I also think that the idea of considering human beings, um, you know, at the top of this evolutionary scale, again, you know, there's implicit evolution right in Genesis 1. Now, this is Genesis 1 is the mm-hmm. priestly author's, um, you know, account. And he, he does have a, a very sophisticated account, even of the stages of evolution. He had something very different in mind from what a scientist has in mind. But the number of ways in which he got it right uh, actually amazed me. Now, I know it's not the point, you know, as Pope Pius XII tells us, the real need here is for truths that are needed for salvation. But it is interesting that this biblical author sitting there in the middle, in the <laughs> middle East in, you know, 6th century B.C. is coming up with this theory, and, and uh, the correspondence is so close in so many ways to our current scientific theories. Of course, it's not in, in any way the timelines and timescales are not in any way uh, correct, but the other stuff that is correct is so uncanny, so different from any other religion mm-hmm. uh, in the area. You just look at it and you go, this is mind-boggling. Yeah. I mean, if this is a coincidence, give me some of those when I'm buying my next lotto ticket. I mean, it's just like, wow. I mean, truly amazing. And I love it that, you know, you said, let there be light. And then yeah. you go to the end of the Bible and it says, God is light. light. And there in him there is no darkness, darkness at all. And just the study of light itself would yield so much about, about God. And so, yes. and so back, back to this in question of the two, the two descriptions, the first oh, yeah. one and the second one. If you can give me just a quick sure. answer on that. Okay, just the first one is written by the priestly author. It's a little bit later. The Yahwist, uh, priestly authors in the 6th century, the Yahwist uh, has written the um, second and third chapters of Genesis. It's all one continuous narrative that we split it uh, in two. And the Yahwist uh, writes in the in the 9th century B.C., uh, maybe even as uh, early as the 10th century B.C. But whatever the case may be, uh, the Yahwist has a very different perspective in mind. His objective is not to correct uh, uh, you know, um, uh, Atra Hasis and, uh, and, uh, um, and uh, you know, the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, is not to uh, uh, correct uh, Enuma Elish, um, you know, which is the, that's the uh, uh, first century, uh, the first <laughs> chapter of Genesis, uh, the priest. His is to talk about human beings. And there's four really important things in this kind of creation of human beings. Yes, the Yahwist, of course, has a single God. Yes, of course, um, he's uh, uh, talking about God being in control of creation, human beings made in the image and likeness of God. All of these things, the Yahwist has got it down 
uh, right. But his purpose is to explain two other things. The first thing is, is in the rival myths that are all around uh, Israel, um, the, the Yahweh has to contend, this is in the 10th century to 9th century BC, you know, he's got to contend first of all with, um, you know, human beings being um, flies and gnats, you know, to the gods. Mm -hmm. And so he's got to correct that right away. The second thing is the view of marriage. He's got to, you know, correct that right away. So, you know, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I mean, again, you look at this. I mean, where is this in the religions of the, of the area? I mean, it's like, wow, he hit on this and we still see the complementarity uh, of the sexes today. It's just like a truly, uh, where'd this guy come up with in the 10th century, 9th century BC? It's just mind boggling. And then of course, he's got something in mind because everything's moving toward chapter three, right? In other words, it's a single narrative from two all the way through the end of three. Mm -hmm. What's he moving toward? How did sin get in the, the world? Ordeal. God made us in a really good way. Remember, the rival myths say God created us to be slaves in a harsh world. No, Genesis says God made us in a good world because God loved us and wanted to give us everything that we needed. I mean, this is such a radical transition for anything in the rival myths. Given the account of creation and what is there, there is much more that is not there than is there. From what is there in those first three chapters of Genesis, what does creation say about us and our relationship with God? Number one, it says we really are transphysical beings. We're spiritual beings. We're like God in his nature. Um, not in his infinite nature, obviously, but he's given us a part of his spiritual being. And that is like uh, amazing. The second, so what does it mean? We have an indescribable, inestimable dignity. Mm -hmm. That is world changing in its effects. The second thing that uh, is introduced there is evil comes into the world by a choice. It's not some random thing that happens or a game that is yeah. played by the gods, but it comes into the world by a choice. Oh, yes, there's a demon there, a serpent, that's basically encouraging uh, Eve and so forth to, to do her thing. Uh, but the main thing is she has to choose to go over to the tree. And of course, she has to uh, uh, convince Adam, and Adam has to choose uh, to do the same thing. And so uh, what, what's going on there is the idea of human freedom and human choice. I mean, the fatalism of the ancient Near Eastern world is gonzo, right? I mean, it's right at that point, you can see that um, uh, the Israel, this Genesis revelation is going to bring in this notion of human freedom in such a concrete and palpable way, it's gonna sweep the world. And of course, the idea of choosing, choosing against the creator who made us in an, a really good garden, in a really good universe, in a place that had everything that we needed, why would we do that? And then the narrative goes on to explain, well, you know, what does the serpent say? Hey, you know, you could really be like gods if you wait from that fruit, mm -hmm. the tree there. 
you know, and of course Eve's, you know, after he, he, lives, he looks at the fruit and sees, oh, it's good to look at, probably tastes good. Makes one wise. Uh, that's right. Makes one wise. I think I'll go over. And of course, the idea is, I want to be like God. Yeah. The whole temptation, not just toward pride, self-idolatry, right from the beginning. Yep. Yep. God has something we didn't get. I want it. And of course, it's not enough that we were made in the image and likeness of God. Yeah. We just have to be God. Yeah. And of course, that's, you know, so it, it, this is being explained. I think this is the heart of all spirituality is yeah. right there. We got to get our groove off yeah. of trying to be God and being humble hearted enough to be fellow creatures to help, uh, you know, in the mission that God has for the world yeah. rather than trying to be and it God. And it tells us something too about the, you know, the nature of, of sin in that. You know, and the, the philosophers from the past have all said this, that, that we do something because we're looking for happiness. And you, yeah. you've got this incredible book that I read years ago, Healing the Culture, <laughs> yeah. A Common Sense Philosophy of Happiness, Freedom, and Life Issues. Yeah. People don't choose that which is going to hurt them to be hurt. They yeah. choose because they're seeking happiness, happiness. and God was offering it all along by obeying his word. And then the enemy comes and says, look, you can, you can circle God and go around it and you can get this yourself. Oh yeah. And by the way, I don't think God really wants you to know this. Yeah. And so then we have that fall. How do you see this in today's culture? How do you see the same thing, is the same thing repeating in people's yeah. lives today? Oh, I think if you say, take a look at social media and the uh, computer world and AI today, and, you know, um, I mean, uh, we're, we're just at the you know, tip of the iceberg in, mm -hmm. in, in, in terms of uh, uh, AI. And um, uh, the, the main thing to r recognize, of course, is AI is a kind of a, I get to be God. I get to create your little uh, AI universe. I get to occupy you with my computer games. I get to manipulate you with the Instagram. I mean, for, for all intents and purposes, right? Uh, I mean, it's an idol. I'm the idol creator. You're the believer in the idol. But look at what happens when you start abandoning the real God and going for the idols. Let's take a look at our youth suicide rates just for a second. How come we see this radical increase in suicides, right? We're talking now, I'm going back 20 years, and it does include COVID statistics, but it started way before COVID statistics. It started as social media began its ascendancy. And as you begin to look at it, notice that religion begins to fall off, right? The nuns are increasing. Notice at the same time um, that uh, uh, the youth uh, depression rates and anxiety rates, suicide rates, and homicide rates go up significantly. Prior to COVID, you basically over a 12-year period had about a 60 to 70% increase just in depression and anxiety rates, um, as well as suicide rates over 12 years. Now that's pretty significant. Yeah. And then on top of it, a 24% increase in homicide rates of, of, of young people, the bullying, et cetera. Now you go post-COVID plus post-COVID and you almost have a doubling of that.
So now we're at 150% increase. It's like, and with young women, right, it's much higher. It's nearly 180, 190% uh, increase in uh, the suicide rates, depression, anxiety rates. So you look at that and you go, what's wrong? Yeah. What's wrong is people are believing in idols. People are trying to believe in e what I call ego comparative happiness. People think that they're going to be happier if they get this dress or this facial makeover or this car or this amount of power or they go to this university which is considered prestigious or whatever it is that they, they think this is or that the idol makers are choosing for them to believe in. But of course, they never satisfy. The only thing that's going to satisfy us ultimately is, is what St. Augustine said, for thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless mm -hmm. until they rest in thee. And, you know, essentially, we won't be satisfied with anything less than perfect truth, perfect love, perfect goodness, perfect beauty, and perfect yeah. being. And that, frankly, is God. Right. You can only have one perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and being, right. and that's God, and God's it. And, and of course, being in relationship with God takes away our emptiness, our cosmic emptiness, cosmic loneliness, cosmic malaise, cosmic boredom, et cetera, all the guilt and everything else that's there. God, uh, being in relationship with him, he's our ultimate mooring and ground of our identity, right? It is God who is the loving God, the unrestrictedly loving God, who can not only take that away from us, you can see that he can actually take our guilt away from us. He can actually take us beyond the malaise into a true mooring and grounding and an ultimate and eternal, eternal and perfect dignity and, and destiny and fulfillment. Only God can do that. Yeah. And he's doing it along the path. Little wonder. This is the American Psychiatric Association here. Hardly a, uh, you know, a, a robot for the Catholic Church, <laughs> right? I mean, the American Psychiatric Association showed in that big 2004 for a study of Kanita Dervik and whatever, 20 other people, right, that, um, that uh, people who are non-religiously affiliated, so they don't have, they're a nun, N-O-N-E, sure. um, they're a nun uh, in terms of religion. People who are non-religiously affiliated have significantly higher, like doubling and tripling of depression, anxiety, substance abuse, familial tensions, antisocial aggressivity, suicidal ideation, and suicides. Hello? Yeah. Hello? I mean, we're, those people are not happy. <laughs> those yeah. people are significantly yeah. unhappier than the ones who have religion. You say, oh, that's just because they invented a security blanket. Sure, they needed their, it. <laughs> they needed it and they invented it in their own mind. Oh, yeah? Well, if that's the case, then why is it that there's so, not only so much evidence for God today from science and philosophy, but why is it that when we are in contact with this God, we never view the God that we make made up as, uh, you know, a God, uh, you know, um, that, that's of our own making. We have this utter sense that that God is a radically different person, and that person is communicating with us and opening himself to us. What does Jesus Christ offer a young person today that has been a part of this AI world, a part of the social media world, a part of a, a kind of an in vogue atheism, 
What would you say to that young person today about Jesus and what's the difference? Jesus will give you genuine love, genuine care. He will give you, as Pope Benedict said, God, Mm -hmm. who is unrestricted love. And the way you'll know it, you'll say, I don't feel, I prayed today, I did not feel the love of Christ. Okay, (laughs) just practice, just do me a favor for everybody out there. Just practice your faith. So go to church and try to even go occasionally on weekdays. Go to church, um, uh, you know, and, and try to be present to church. Try to pray at least 15 minutes uh, um, uh, daily, you know, and, and if you want to do a rosary, fine. You want to do it from Scripture, fine. You want to do it from some other way. I, I, I'll, but just pray 15 minutes daily. And, of course, try to follow the moral teachings of Jesus. Just do it for one month. I prefer if you did it for two months. Just gauge yourself. The minute you start doing this, ask yourself the following question. Do I feel as empty uh, today as I did two months ago? Do I feel, I mean, in the sense of cosmic emptiness, Mm -hmm. right? Where you're looking in the mirror, right? And you're just, as you look at yourself, nothing's coming back at you. It's insubstantial. You're feeling a void in the pit of your stomach. You're going, oh, you know, what's happening to me? Or that sense of loneliness. I'm talking about cosmic loneliness, right? Where, you you know, you're, you're just, you know, surrounded by friends. And all of a sudden, you know. They, I need what they cannot give. There's something missing, terribly missing. It's not enough to believe. You gotta go to church, gotta start praying, gotta follow Jesus's uh, moral teaching. But if you start doing that, I'm just gonna say, I'm gonna guarantee you, after two months of doing this, you're gonna notice subtle differences and then big differences. Sounds like a challenge. And depression level, and exactly. <laughs> Anxiety level. Game on. And, and <laughs> guilt, the whole thing. Yeah. It's gonna wow, be this has life. been so good and uh, so much more we could talk about. We're gonna take a break. And when we come back, we are going to go into a little bit about your life in the Word of God. And we have some questions from you, and uh, we're going to answer those. And uh, for those of you that don't know uh, Father Spitzer, uh, he's blind. And uh, you might not have known that. We're going to talk about that a little bit. And, and uh, he has not always been blind, but we're going to talk about that process and what he has gained as a result of it. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is The Early World, and we're talking with Father Robert Spitzer. What a conversation we've had, Father. And I can tell by what you're saying that uh, you've been studying. <laughs> you have really been studying, because there was a couple words you used that I didn't even know what they meant. Just a couple. <laughs> and so you have had a, quite, a, quite a celebrated uh, career of academics and, and studying, but at the heart of it is the Word of God uh, for you. Tell me a little bit about your, your own personal relationship with Scripture and how you go about feeding your soul. Well, um, uh, just uh, my history is uh, I wasn't always uh, uh, connected with Scripture. I, I had a little bit of a, an Augustinian period in high school where I just thought the Old Testament, I, I, I can't buy it. The New Testament, I had no problem with, <laughs> ever. But the Old Testament, there were things in there. It wasn't just the science things. You know, there were some of these moral things in the patriarchal period that are more fair. Yeah, exactly, and things of that nature. And I just thought, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know. I remember 
one of my teachers actually describing, well, Moses says in this passage from Deuteronomy here that, uh, you know, kill everything, man, woman, child, dog, and the whole place, and, the, you know, and you're uh, victors uh, in Canaan, you know. And uh, I didn't know anything about Ratzinger's distinction between, you know, the core message uh, being inerrant versus the what he calls the uh, uh, external form uh, of the expression, which is not inerrant. So it, it could be uh, wrong, you know, it could be a, a how. And anyway, I would look at these things and nobody gave me any hermeneutics whatsoever, which is why I wrote that book, Science, Reason, and Faith, Discovering the Bible. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time on it because I worry that somebody's gonna say, well, what do you mean God told Abraham uh, you know, to kill his son Isaac, what, uh, you know, and of course, you know, they're like me in high school, you know, I'm finding out this stuff without any hermeneutical principles, no methodology whatsoever, and I'm just getting clobbered, you yeah. know, by, I mean, I just was thinking, oh my gosh, you know, and every time somebody would point one of these things out, you know, I, I, I you know, have this little Augustinian crisis. Remember Augustine had the very same crisis with the Old Testament. Well, um, he had his Ambrose, St. Ambrose, who was yep. the guy who kind of got him out of it. Well, I basically got a biblical hermeneutics course and I got out of it, you know. So I did learn a lot of these distinctions. And yeah, you know, Josef Ratzinger's, uh, uh, you know, early distinctions were incredibly important to me. Um, you know, being able to know Oh, what's inerrant and what's not inerrant? What changes over the course of time? I just remember somebody putting into my hands, um, you know, the uh, uh, Pontifical Biblical Commission's document, a moral development in the Old Testament. I read that thing and I, oh, there's, there's a patriarchal period, and that was different from the Mosaic period, you know. Mm-hmm. So, like with respect to vengeance, well, you know, Cain he can be avenged seven times, you know, uh, you know, according to God. Mm-hmm. Whereas Moses comes along and says, nay, nay, exact vengeance only. You can't double up and triple up and seven times up. You got to basically, you know, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, no more. So parody of vengeance. And then, of course, we got the later prophets that say, well, mercy can be as important um, as, as uh, you know, justice or vengeance. And then Christ, forget the vengeance, you know, forgive 70 times, seven times, you know, violence begets violence and vengeance begets vengeance. And so better off, you know, letting um, uh, God do the vengeance and you do the uh, um, the forgiveness, and in fact, God does the forgiveness too because he loves his enemies. Mm-hmm. And you look at that and you go, okay, uh, I get it now. But I didn't, who knew? Yeah. Nobody bothered to tell me. So you started it from a place of struggling and questions yeah. just like, like yeah. everybody else. But now yeah. after all these years, you were president of Gonzaga. Yeah. Uh, who we know because they had a really good basketball team. <laughs> but <laughs> but you, you, know, you went through all of those years. Uh, you, you've written 18 books since you yeah. left there. You don't read the Bible on a daily basis. Oh, I, I listen to it. You listen to it. I do. How does that work? Well, I have an Alexa and uh, at home, and I have a computer that reads to me at work. And, um, uh, you know, there's audible books. I prefer them because it's a real human reader. Mm-hmm. Although Alexa, you know, will read uh, uh, any Kindle book in a pretty pretty good way. It doesn't, you know, it's not a mechanical sound. Anymore. You won't meet Alexa in heaven. Yeah, you won't meet Alexa in heaven, though. But the you can get the, the books read. But I, I like to go through uh, 
um, you know, the Bible. Um, I listened to it. First of all, I better start with the New Testament. New Testament changed my life. Jesus Christ changed my life. I have to tell you, you know, you look at God, you approach God from a scientific perspective. And I did for a long while. Um, that was my view of God. I mean, I knew one thing about Jesus that was my good church, my wonderful Catholic church always insisted on. Jesus Christ is unrestricted love. That's who he is. He's the love of God. Now, it's that image of God as unrestricted love. That's what saves me. Because I knew if Jesus had a purpose, it had to do with the heart of God. I, I can find out from philosophy and science very well that God exists. I can know that God very, very, very likely is an unrestricted, uncaused, unique, yeah. constant creator of all else that is. I can figure that out with logic. I can see that in scientific uh, equations. I can see that in a variety of other things. Yeah. However, I cannot know the who of God. I can't know the heart of God. Only way that's going to happen is through revelation. Yeah. So I was kind of on the brink. I knew if it really mattered to me, if God is love, then I, you know I want to believe it. The first thing I just said was, okay, what's the most important thing in my life? You know, it's not my intelligence. You know, I like my intelligence. I'm, I'm glad I have it. But it's not my most important power. My most important power is to freely choose love. Mm. My most important power is to love because that's what creates the relationship. That's what enables me to do the good beyond myself. That's the power that gives me not only the power to follow Christ and to do his will, but also it is the power of love that you know enables me to do any good in this world. I love that. I will otherwise go out and make some money, you know, whatever the case may be. The second thing, so I finally figured out, okay, love's what really matters. Then the second thing I just ask is, you know, well, wait a minute here. You know, if, um, if my most important power is love and God is my creator, then God can't be devoid of love. So I gotta, I'm figuring God's at least got some love in him. Then I went to a third idea, and the third idea was, hey, wait a minute, you know, I just don't want some love. I want unrestricted love. You know, I really do. I want, I want to be in a relationship where, uh, with another, um, with God, with an, you know, the being of God, and through, with others through God, I want to have that relationship where ego is no longer in the way. Narcissism is no longer in the way. Spitzerian rationalization is no longer <laughs> in the way. Basically, I can see another human being in the true, unique lovability and goodness and beauty that they are, and they can see me in the same way. I get it all out of there and then look at the other human being. I'll tell you, it just occurred to me, I would, we would be so in, in a, such a lockdown, empathetic, caring, and emotionally intimate relationship that there could be, you know, literally time would cease in the joy that came yeah. with sharing our unique goodness and lovability with one another. Yeah, and you hear that so often between yeah. uh, people who are dating and they're, they're getting engaged yeah. and they say that when they're together, time time ceases. I want, I want yeah. to ask you a question that is brought up. It's a hypothetical question that is brought yeah. up so often, and that yeah. is this. 
If you had a choice to lose your sight or lose uh, your hearing, which one would you choose? Lose my sight. Uh, because basically, you know, the human voice um, is the conveying of emotion. Of course, I could see maybe some human emotion like anger or fear with gesturing, uh, but uh, to get like the hundreds of emotional nuances, which I understand from just engaging another human being's voice, I could never miss that. I mean, I'd, I'd miss music. I, I, you know, I'd miss the power of you know hearing the ocean or you know whatever it may be, but the human voice. I mean, it would be, for me, it'd be like cutting off that connection I have with their heart, with uh, their nuance, with their uh, uh, freedom, and with uh, their softness or goodness, and at the same time, their enthusiasm and their joy. Uh, I, mean, I mean, there's just something about the voice that strikes right to the heart. And I would, n I would never want to give that up. And like I said, I'm addicted to music. I always have been very musical since I've been a little kid, and um, I really love it. Yeah, of course, being without my driver's license, oh, I miss that autonomy, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, being without uh, the ability, I remember when it you know, How old were you when you first noticed that you, something was happening? 30. 30? Yeah, about then I began to know uh, something's going wrong here, and I was basically at 31. I, I went to Israel. I, uh, when I went to Israel, um, I could read the pointing underneath my Hebrew characters, the little vocalization points under the characters. When I got back from Israel, I could not read those points anymore. I thought I needed a bifocal, but I didn't. Yeah, my retina was uh, obviously undergoing some form of atrophy. Uh, atrophying, and um, so, uh, um, and the fellow finally, uh, when the diagnosis came in, he told me, well, you know, you're probably going to be go blind at some point, and I just, uh, first they thought it was best disease, I'd go blind in six months, but thank God it was retinitis pigmentosa. How did you handle that when you heard that? <laughs> well, um, the story was basically, uh, I was devastated, needless to say, and uh, it wasn't just the driver's license. I'm a scholar. I, I love to read. I love, you know, I love, mm. reading is like part of my being. And so, uh, you know, uh, just the very thought of losing that yeah. and not thinking about any of the remedies that God could give me, including really nice people who <laughs> read to me throughout the years. But the main thing, though, is, um, is that uh, I was just moping around and walking down my provincial uh, offices down the hallway, and my provincial runs into me and he goes, Bob Spitzer, what are you doing here? You know, because I was back from Rome. Mm -hmm. uh, this all happened to me in Rome. And, and uh, so, well, you know, I got a really serious eye problem, I guess. You know, I, I guess I'm going to go blind. And he goes, You want to talk about it? I said, Yeah, I, <laughs> I do. You know, so I walk in there. I'm giving him the whole line, right? Well, Tom, I'm really damaged goods, you know. I, you know, I mean, I just, you know, my scholarly career is probably going to come to an end, and, you know, I'll be okay, you know. I guess you're saying the Mass or memorizing it, but, you know, I, I won't be able to do all the unique prayers, I, you know, for <clears throat> various parts of the Mass. So, you know, I, I wouldn't blame you at all if you wanted to 
you know, cash it in here and, you know, just say, uh, you know, it's it's all over. You know, I, I wouldn't blame you. I said, you, you know, you thought I was in good physical health and it looks like I'm not. So, uh, so uh, do what you have to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, my provincial is looking up at me and he finally, after about a minute's hesitation, he says, uh, Bob, what spirit have you been listening to? <laughs> and I thought, ooh, you know, uh, the demonic one? <laughs> and of course, he said, I think so, you know. Yeah. There's deception here. So, of course, he got my mind straightened out in a hurry, but oh, no, I mean, those things can happen. Uh, they can have cataclysmic effect unless you realize that the Holy Spirit's going to support you all the way, that uh, you're going to find people in your life who just help you out. You know, I've got this great assistant, uh, Joan Jacoby, and she's, you know, she didn't mind driving me. She didn't mind reading to me. She, you know, she's flipping my slides. I can't even see my own. I can memorize my slides, yeah. you know, when I'm giving a presentation. You were talking to me about the knowing, like knowing my voice. We've known each other yeah. for 30 years. You say, I know your voice. I yep. would not miss your, your, vo yeah. your voice. Being yeah. blind, and you're completely blind, right? Yeah. yeah. There's no light. There's no tunnel, anything yeah. like that. What does that mean about uh, as far as hearing the voice of God? For me, it's been a real blessing because um, uh, I have to be honest, you know, uh, uh, arrogance was kind of my middle name when I was a little <laughs> younger. And, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I won't even tell you. I guess the standard line for me was, does not suffer fools gladly. And uh, and people, you know, said, you know, Spencer, you got to be patient with people. You know, mm -hmm. they're not going to get, you know, you know, triple integrals in two seconds. You know, you give them some time. You know, and uh, <laughs> and basically, I I basically had a sense that, you know, um, I don't know why, but. Uh, that it made me in some way superior or something. Sure. Well, blindness is really, really good mm -hmm. to curing that in one half second. Remember what I said when I thought about, you know, what's my highest power, my intellect or love? Well, a lot of the time I was thinking, even though I would say love, mm -hmm. my intellect uh, seems to be pretty good. I like that advantage, <laughs> you know? And so, uh, uh, you know, I would uh, basically... Uh, uh, put that out there. Well, try bumping into a few walls in front of people. Yeah, that'll uh, cure the pride. And uh, as I always uh, say to people, I'm a Second Corinthians twelve guy. You know, um, you know, uh, I, I really do believe that. Well, you know, Paul, Saint Paul, yeah. and, and uh, you know, the Lord gave me a, a thorn in the flesh, an angel of Satan, to beat me, to keep me from getting proud. Mm -hmm. Proud. There it is. Paul was a man of many talents. Mm -hmm. He really was. He was an he could, academic. He was an academic. He was a student of Gamaliel, Gamaliel. the grandson of Hillel. Oh, exactly. <laughs> and of course, you got to think, did it get to his head? Occasionally, it must have. But the main thing that he resolves at the end of that is in my weakness is my strength. Yes. For as I grow weaker, Christ grows stronger in me. Do you find that in your life? Absolutely. You gotta be reliant. You gotta trust in God. You know, it's just too easy to say, I can't handle it all myself, I give up. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, for a while there, I, I was doing that a little bit. 
But God was just weaning me off of my little well, you had probably had reliance no, You had no idea that when you gave up the presidency at Gonzaga, you had 18-plus books in you no. that were going to yeah. come out. And that is an amazing thing. And so I can see that, the, <laughs> that when you are weak, God is strong, and he can do great things yeah. through you in such a way that he gets the credit. Yeah, <laughs> he, gets, he gets the credit. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I even thought that Paul was going blind. Uh, that that was yeah. his thorn. In he kind of gives evidence of it. He doesn't does. He? I write he does. with big letters. And yeah, we're going to take some questions. He says, "Were the people in the Old Testament really that old? Did they really live hundreds and hundreds of years?" Well, no, they didn't uh, do um, a numbering as we do numbering right. today. Uh, basically, there are three reasons for enumeration uh, in, of course, early Semitic culture, and that really pertained to the Mosaic era all the way yeah. um, through Jesus' time in some ways. But the patriarchal age did have <clears throat> a very different consideration of numeration. We're very literal about numbers. Um, the uh, numbers for uh, Jewish people, um, you know, from about uh, 1200 uh, going forward, mm -hmm. um, uh, probably had a symbolic meanings, first of all. Or honorific. They're honorific meanings, too. So seven, of course, is a sacred number. Prime numbers have that uh, feel of uh, eternal or ongoing or, um, you know, so forth. Uh, um, if you wanted to say lots and lots, you, you, made, you said a thousand. Did they mean literally a thousand? No. It just, you know, 5,000 would be more than lots and lots yeah. uh, of people. So it's not uh, in any way, uh, you know, a, a literal interpretation of numeration is, is a very bad idea. The Egyptians didn't do it either. I mean, no, the they did. Nobody really did yeah. in that time. Uh, just let yourself be humble. Uh, yeah. Look at what their view of number was. And then try and figure out why Noah has this age or yeah. whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you're so smart, you must be going on 610, <laughs> 700, Father Spitzer, 700 years old right here on the show today. <laughs> Second question <Hardly. laughs> from Daniel, would Adam and Eve, oh, that's a good question, would Adam and Eve uh, have, have experienced hunger prior to the fall, or is hunger something we feel related to the fall? Yeah, um, I don't think hunger is related to the fall. I think it's just a natural biological instinct that we've been made with so we don't starve, um, basically. Um, we feel it, and because we feel it, we pursue the food. Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing with dogs' hunger, right? It's, uh, that's, the instinct is there. When they f have that feeling, they, they, they go in search of, of food. Yeah. Uh, the same thing, you know, why do we feel freezing? Uh, because it's called get out of the cold. Uh, you, you're, you're, <laughs> Don't you're, touch the ovens. That's right. Yeah. Before you get to hypothermia, I'm going to give you some feelings uh, of uh, pain that will uh, indicate that uh, to you. So the first thing, of course, is you, you don't want to uh, impose again, uh, uh, you know, what were the kinds of pain uh, that came into the world? Of course, uh, you know, the the real pain that comes into the world at original sin is the fact that we were destined for eternity. Mm -hmm. And now we know, the first couple knows, they're no longer destined for eternity. Now, of course, they may have been, but their whole sense of reality is they're going to die. Yeah. And that, uh, the Bible nails it right on. 
No other species has the sense that they were meant to be ongoing and eternal and they're going to die. Yeah. Our species, not even earlier hominids like Neanderthals ever had such a feeling. Yeah. That's very specific. And by the way, if you don't think there was a first couple, I think the book you wanna read if you're interested in the scientific account, take a look at Robert Berwick and Noam Chomsky's book, uh, um, Why Only Us, MIT Press from 2017, makes an exceedingly good linguistic case uh, for why the first couple was very, very probably a, a single couple and not, uh, I would call them our ensouled parents. Yeah, it is a good question from Kayla. When they heard the sound of the Lord God, Walking about in the garden at the breezy time of the day, what does it mean that God was walking? Wouldn't he need a body in order to walk? Well, the idea of God walking, um, you know, it implied that he did need a, a body, but of course that's meant in a metaphorical sure. sense, that God is basically interacting with Adam and Eve as a person, mm -hmm. right? But of course, he is a person to them. Even, you know, the, 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 the numinous uh, creation is, is uh, you know, uh, like a person. But in the breezy time of the day, it just evokes peace. Yeah. And so what the author is trying to say is, God isn't gonna come, right, this is after the sin, right? So, you know, you'd think that, uh-oh, uh you know, God's going to give what for, right, to the um, person, right, uh, you know, have done this. But God comes and he's walking in the garden and first he's walking as we feel the peace. Then afterwards, you know, he's looking for Adam and Eve, right? He's, he's not screaming at them, right? you know. Um, they're hiding and he's going, ah, you know, uh, where are you? Mm -hmm. And so you get this sense that God is not, it's like, He's not going to get vengeance himself on Cain. It's the the mercy of God in the Old Testament oh, it's is just it's thoroughly just amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah. marinating in, yeah. in in mercy. Father, this yeah. has been so good. I can't thank you enough for for joining us. And I know that you've hit on a lot of different topics, and maybe you have stirred the interest in some areas for people that they didn't know were going to be stirred here. <laughs> How would people get in? in touch with you in your universe? How, if they, they want to do more reading, they, they might want to have more questions uh, answered. How do they go about that? Well, I have a website called magiscenter.com, M-A-G-I-S center.com. And I have uh, an email, uh, spitzer, S-P-I-T-Z-E-R, at magiscenter.com, so the same as the uh, website. And, uh, you know, uh, I do answer my emails uh, uh, when I can. I mean, uh, uh, sometimes when I get a flood and I'm traveling a lot, I get behind, but, uh, but be patient with uh, yours truly. And also, uh, I uh, have, of course, a lot of books. Uh, uh, just go to Robert Spitzer. Um, you know, and there's a lot of faith in science books, but uh, also books on uh, happiness and uh, even on the evil spirit and uh, books of that nature. That's, that's great. Uh, I can't thank you enough. And uh, to close out the show, uh, I'll just ask you if you could close us out with prayer and specifically to pray for all of those who are dealing with these questions about the early world and uh, the universe and science. Uh, just to lift them up in prayer. Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we 
ask you to send your spirit, your grace, the love of your son upon uh, all of us so curious about how faith and reason come together, so curious about how to respond to the culture's almost incessant uh, uh, moves to try and secularize us. And we ask you to send that spirit of wisdom, of consolation, and to knowledge and reason uh, upon those people where they can find the answers uh, that they're searching for, but also have the confidence that you truly are as your son has portrayed you, radically in love with us like the prodigal son's father who allows himself to be called Abba and Daddy in your midst. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. And Son and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Now shake your hand. God oh, bless you. God bless you, you too. Thanks so much. Thank you for watching. If you would like to see more amazing content on the Bible, be sure to like and subscribe.